Hello and welcome to On The Money, where you can find out anything and everything to do with finance, business and the economy. On The Money is broadcast live from the studios of Radio 2SER 107.3 here in Sydney, nationwide, out to the Australian people via the Community Radio Network. I'm Roderick Chambers and coming up on the program today... Because is unemployed, you've got to be uh, actively looking for work. And there's probably a lot of people at the moment who think there's not much point actively looking for work when nobody is hiring. Employment Minister Michaelia Cash was giving a press conference today to present the latest employment figures. But even she admitted that the figures were pretty much irrelevant as it was pre-coronavirus. And she repeated the figure released by Treasury that unemployment was predicted to reach 10% in June. Also on the program... And it's deemed to be a rugby league club, a community-based rugby league club. But 60% of their annual revenue comes from poker machines. Something independent MP Andrew Wilkie has been trying to do for years is to shut down the poker machine industry. Coronavirus shut it down overnight, of course. But with $1.9 billion in net profit in just New South Wales alone at stake, what does it mean for the viability of small venues such as pubs and clubs? Then there's the knock-on effects to community grants for sporting clubs and other community clubs. Many will not survive. All this and more coming up on On The Money. But first, in a normal year, we would be coming up to the run-up to the federal budget in the second week of May. But, of course, this year all bets are off until September. And the figures are still being calculated that would inform the basis for many of the budget initiatives. And this year, in high relief, are projections for employment. Employment has become critical to the clutch starting of the economy as it coasts faster and faster down the coronavirus hill. Josh Frydenberg announced on Tuesday that Treasury had forecasts that unemployment would be up to 10%. And the IMF has forecast our economy to be one of the worst in the region in the next 18 months. I asked John Hawkins, Assistant Professor of Politics at Canberra University, how bad will the recession be and what should we be comparing it to? Well, it looks like the immediate drop in GDP is going to be significantly bigger than in the, the global financial crisis of uh, 2008, it's going to be bigger than the recession that we had to have in the early 90s. It's going to be bigger than the early 80s recession. It's going to be bigger than the mid-70s recession. So I think the, the initial drop in GDP is going to be much bigger than any of those. those. The question is whether it's, uh, we get a faster recovery this time than we have from the, the other uh, recessions. I mean, there's some hope of that. Certainly the Prime Minister thinks, you know, in six months' time or three months' time, we'll just flick a switch and go go back to how things were uh, prior uh, to this. That, I think, is probably a little bit optimistic. Um, and I think there's just going to be some some businesses that just aren't going to survive this period, even with the, the government assistance. So the, and, he's being a bit optimistic, but do you think the IMF is being uh, pessimistic? Um, no, I think they're being optimistic too. Um, they're also predicting quite a quite a quick uh, uh, jump back in this. And uh, their their chief economist herself uh, admitted that they might be being uh, optimistic. So 
you know, she she said, uh, you know, must, much worse growth outcomes are possible and may even be likely, uh, particularly uh, if it if you know globally uh, a lot of emerging economies uh, you know struggle to to deal with the problem, or if it if it breaks out again somewhere in China. I mean, we don't really know yet whether people can be infected more than once with it. Moment, it looks probably not, but we don't know. And similarly, we don't know whether it's going to mutate um, and 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 reinfect people that way. Um, so there's sort of a lot of uncertainty, most of which is probably on the downside. Uh, and is uh, employment going to be the the biggest issue that we have? Yeah. Um, and the the government's job keeper program will 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 help uh, people keep a connection with employers that they wouldn't wouldn't otherwise. I mean, I suspect we may not see as big a jump in unemployment as as, as people expect because right as unemployed, you've got to be uh, actively looking for work. And there's probably a lot of people at the moment who think there's not much point actively looking for work when nobody is hiring. Looking at the Great Depression as you know economically. The, the direst, I suppose, situation we've been in. But what was the situation with after the Spanish flu? That can't have been very good economically either. Uh, no, it, it's sort of a, a, a little bit hard to identify the impact of um, Spanish flu because it, it coincided with the end of the First World War. So you had this sort of massive disruption of all these people coming back uh, from the war and trying to reorient uh, production uh, from uh, making uh, military equipment to making civilian uh, things again and a resumption of, of trade that had uh, stopped during the First World War. So it's very, very hard to um, pin down what the impact of the, the Spanish flu was. Also, back back then, we didn't have the sort of same national accounts or even labour force surveys uh, that we do now. So it, it's sort of... Uh, I, mean, I think the answer has to be yes. That the, the Spanish flu must have had a big impact on the economy, but it's just very hard to measure what it, what it was. Yeah, so it's it's probably better to think about the Great Depression as uh, something to compare against. And if you're looking at that, then really Australia had a worse depression than, uh, say, the US or the UK. Really, didn't it? Uh, yeah, and the economy had been a bit weak even before the sort of Wall Street crash, but that really drove it down. And and it lasted a long while. I mean, the in some sense, the economy really didn't recover until we got into the Second World War. There was still there was still high unemployment right through the the nineteen thirties. I mean, not helped by the fact that in those days they didn't have uh, you know, fiscal stimulus uh, packages or, or even monetary easing. Uh, the you know, governments were sort of obsessed with um, balancing budgets as a Gladstonian fiscal rectitude. And, and so when tax revenues went down as a result of the depression, the government response was to try to cut their spending, and, and that just made things worse. That just reduced demand further in the economy. So, so we had to at least learn uh, some lessons from the Great Depression, and that's why we were able to handle uh, the GFC better and, and why I think we'll handle uh, this, this event better too. I mean, is it is it because we're a trading economy, uh, a commodities economy, that we're more vulnerable to these sorts of uh, international shocks? Uh, yeah, I mean, we we would be in a recession now even if there was, there was no virus in Australia, um, even if we hadn't closed down any of our shops or anything like that, um, just because 
we're you know, significant trading come China, trade, big trading partners, China and the US and Japan have gone into recession, then that almost certainly means that we will, will too. And, and are we looking at uh, China again uh, to help pull us out of the hole? Well, this this time China has been much more hurt than they were in the in, in the GFC. I mean, the the IMF's forecast I think has the Chinese economy growing something like one percent. So it's not going to be a sort of a locomotive that can uh, um, help us a lot. Um, but still, yeah, you know, the Chinese economy, if it does grow by one percent, that's going to be a stronger performance than a lot of other economies. So in a sense, we're better off having uh, China as a major trading partner than Europe or, or the US. All right, well, just to, to finish off then, John, you, you've uh, said that the uh, Prime Minister and the IMF are a little uh, perhaps on the optimistic side. How long is it, do you think, that we, it will take our economy to rebound from this? Um, if, you know, given that this year's probably a bit of a write-off. Well, if the government package, um, the JobKeeper package, succeeds in keeping people in touch uh, with, with work, and if people, once once the number of uh, new cases drops, uh, people's confidence returns, then we could have uh, a fairly uh, quick recovery. But if it if if people worry it's going to come back, or people worry that it's it's um, you know that they feel like they need to um, build up their savings in cases and other crises like this or something, uh, then it will be that much harder to uh, get the economy going again. So, so consumer confidence, business confidence, all those sort of indicators are going to be key. Yeah, and and they've died so far, but whether they they quickly recover, you, you know, it's hard to say. John Hawkins, assistant professor, School of Politics, Economics, and Society at the University of Canberra, speaking with me there. I'm Roderick Chambers, and you're listening to On the Money throughout Australia on the Community Radio Network. You're listening to On the Money where smart money listens right around Australia. Well, on to the less smart money. Poker machines have become a staple of hospitality venues across the country with, of course, their addictive nature and their delightful profitability for their owners. In the last quarter of 2019 alone, punters on gaming machines in New South Wales pubs and clubs lost $1.8 billion billion dollars that's with a b now as these venues lie shut there are questions about how this industry is going to survive and how dependent the states are on the revenue raised from taxing these machines toby hemmings speaks to professor laurie brown from the deputy director of the institute of governance and policy analysis at the university of canberra it's a ubiquitous sound when you're down at the pub the bells the whistles the sound of a flutter. Poker machines have integrated themselves into Australian society. In every state and territory bar Western Australia, you can find a poker machine in any club or pub you enter. Professor Laurie Brown, Deputy Director of the Institute of Governance and Policy Analysis at the University of Canberra, explains how poker machines have become so prevalent. One, the poker machines are out in the community. So in Australia, it's widespread access. Second is they're deemed just to be part of community clubs. So a lot of the clubs are profiled as sporting clubs. Look, we're your local rugby league club. And then 
another element to it is that for a long time, Australians didn't realise the addictive nature of poker machines. They're psychologically designed to get you in to play and to um, put more and more money in. And um, as people say, if you sit long enough in front of a poker machine, you'll lose all your money. In Australia, businesses have been built off the profits of these machines. Professor Laurie Brown. For clubs and pubs, poker machines have become a major platform of their business model. They are incredibly lucrative. So on average, an organisation having poker machines is likely to make a 50% profit. Uh, 25% of the revenue, and in New South Wales it's now up to about $6.8 million a year, uh, about 25% will go on state tax, and the other 25% is the cost of running those machines. So it's having the staff and maintenance of the machines. So they're incredibly lucrative. Some of the clubs, up to 60% of their annual revenue will come from poker machines. And that may go up as high as 70%. I know of um, one club in in the ACT where, um, and it's deemed to be a rugby league club, a community-based rugby league club but 60% of their annual revenue comes from poker machines. As these profits have increased, states have been able to cash in thanks to gambling taxes. Professor Laurie Brown again. Tax on poker machines contributes to about 2 to 3% of state revenue. So out of every $100, say the New South Wales government is getting in revenue, $2 is coming from the taxation on poker machines. Uh, In the absence of COVID-19, over the next 10 years, um, New South Wales residents are likely to lose about $85 billion on the poker machines. And from that, the New South Wales government will get around uh, $22.5 billion in taxation. To put this into context, the money the New South Wales government raised by poker machine taxes in last year was double the money they raised through fines issued. It was predicted that 2020 would continue to see poker machine losses rise. But this was prior to COVID-19. Now these spaces lie empty. Gamblers now have the option to move online, but Professor Laurie Brown argues that due to differing demographics, many poker machine players won't do so. People of all ages, both genders, uh, people from a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds will play poker machines. Now, in the absence of those poker machines, so you might get little older ladies who may be per-spin, 30 cents, 50 cents, something like that, and they may be there for a a long time, that expenditure may still be very problematic for them because they are often on sort of limited budgets. But it's unlikely that they would go home and then bet online. I think it's the people, um, and particularly younger people, who are more savvy around online gambling. And I think some addicts will translate 
their behaviour of going into the clubs, back home into um, playing online. Professor Brown argues that these clubs may be put under financial pressure by this crisis, but that many of these clubs use a community spirit as a motive to profit off of the losses and disharmony that these machines cause. I think there is a a threat to the clubs and and pubs, but particularly to the clubs. It depends on your perspective of what the benefits of community clubs are. If they are just a business that are getting you know fifty percent profits out of poker machines, you know, if you look at some of the clubs, they're making so much money, even though they're supposed to be not for profit. They've gone into huge expansions and buildings because they don't know what to do with the money. Now, that seems to me to be perverse and against what the, the local purposes are. Some economists would argue that um, if they do uh, disappear, that may actually be a good thing in terms of the overall um, cost to society. Despite poker machine taxes raising money for state governments... This money often comes from losses from problem gamblers. The money saved by these poker machines lying dormant could be beneficial to these people in terms of dealing with COVID-19. Professor Laurie Brown views this stagnation as a silver lining to the current crisis. To me, from a public health perspective, Mm. it is actually a good shock uh, because it frees up so many people who otherwise would have been going to these venues. And so I, so I don't know what the proportion is, but um, some people certainly will turn to online gambling, but I think a lot of people will just get stuck in and do normal family activities and just won't be going down to these venues. Yes, well, let's hope so. That was Toby Hemming speaking with Professor Laurie Brown, Deputy Director of the Institute of Governance and Policy Analysis at the University of Canberra. You're listening to On The Money Around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Roderick Chambers. Well, whilst you're stuck inside, your mind may be wondering what you can do that gives you a sense of achievement. Now, do you remember all those Airfix models that used to take up the kitchen table with glue and tiny parts? Well, a magazine corporation has found a new market for building model cars to scale in very high-quality die-cast metal. And so a while back, we talked to Tom Edmondson, whose company has these iconic cars for you to build. And the one we're talking about in this particular segment is the DeLorean of Back to the Future fame. So uh, it's it's good to talk to you and uh, obviously talking about a great product, which is, you know, build a DeLorean collection where you get to build your own one-to-eight scale die-cast model. Tom Edmondson from Eagle Moss Magazine Group have launched the Build Your Own DeLorean magazine, in which you get parts to build, of course, your own DeLorean. Um, Eagle Moss are a, a big partworks company operating in uh, the UK, Australia and, and sort of 30 other countries worldwide. Typically we do uh, collectible magazines, so everything from figurines to uh, die-cast models, craft titles, cooking and children. So I think there's something in there for, uh, for everybody. And uh, like the latest one we've done, which is this big, huge launch for us, is you know, like I said, the, uh, the DeLorean collection. For anyone who, uh, who's eager to build it, it's, uh, you're still not too late. It's in the shops now. You can go to 
buildthedelorean.com, which I think is a, a nice and straightforward website and, to remember. And so the idea is that, you know, you every month you get a new piece. Is that the way that it works? It's, uh, yeah, so every month if you subscribe, you'll receive uh, what we call four issues in the post, um, and that will contain four magazines and uh, quite an extensive amount of parts to build uh, this model. It's over 130 issues, so it's sort of, you know, a two-year project. And, yeah, you build it piece by piece to the level of detail that I, I don't think you'll see anywhere on the market. It's uh, at the end of it, provided you get there, it's sort of like a, a museum quality uh, model piece with such detail. I mean, you're going the amount of issues that uh, it takes to build. Um, it's been built in uh, accordance with Universal, but also Joe Walter, who worked on the, the actual movies back in uh, you know, the 1980s. So the blueprints, the car, and uh, the level of detail is all signed off. Um, it couldn't be any more authentic, I think, is the... Uh, yeah, so, I mean, uh, John DeLorean, of course, famously was the, the head honcho at uh, General Motors and uh, left after a bit of a tiff with various board members, I think, and yeah. uh, decided to build this crazy car in Ireland when Ireland was uh, offering big incentives for manufacturers. And it's all aluminium, I mean, the real car. doesn't have a terribly big engine, but, of course, it has these big uh, gullwing Door, oh, not what do they call it? Are they gullwing doors? Yeah, gullwing yeah. doors, the ones yeah. that lift up. Yeah, gullwing doors, because you know the old Mercedes in the 1930s had that gullwing concept, which people seem to love. Yeah. Uh, unless you've got a unless you've got a very low ceiling in your garage or something. But uh, this this car, of course, famously became uh, the icon of the series, the film series um, Back to the Future, didn't it? And do you see that as the main driver of the popularity of, of the car at the moment? The, uh, the franchise of, of the film collection, the film trilogy, has, uh, is, is as strong as ever, uh, really, with the 30th anniversary two years ago and the famous Back to the Future Day uh, in October 2015. So, um, you know, the 30th anniversary has passed. This, uh, we've launched in, a, you know, um, in relationship with Universal. And from uh, having toured around the world, to be honest, it's launched in several markets. We've taken the model um, to several places, the finished model, and uh, it's, you're right, the DeLorean is an iconic car, and the Back to the Future movie on top of that just makes it such a, a collector's item, uh, which isn't really available. So having spoken to, to fans of, of cars, um, Back to the Future and the DeLorean, um, they're really interested to see something as detailed as this that you build yourself, um, and with actually you know, a magazine to support it where... Uh, it goes into quite some level of detail about um, about the film, the films, and the trilogy. The, yeah. uh, the car itself, actually, I should add, um, you get the the choice of making it the car from the film version one, two, or three. We'll even include the uh, you know the the white wall tires of the uh, that go on the the train tracks in the, the third film. So oh right, it's really you know it's. <laughs> It, the level of detail is quite superb, yeah. um, and, and, and it, it's look, ready it, for any movie buff. It, it was it was a bit of a hard car to build in the first place. I understand, you know, well, just from reading motoring magazines and so forth. But um, it, it, so, how hard is it to build, uh, you know, a tiny one? Uh, one to eight scale. Uh, don't get me wrong; it is still quite large. It's sort of over fifty centimeters and weighs ten kilos um, when it's finished. So don't worry about you know the the pernickety. Um, it's no IKEA build. I think is what we call it. You know, IKEA being the uh, Sort of height, heady heights of uh, their instruction manual, photographic step-by-step uh, -step instructions in each magazine, and we give you all of the uh, the tools you need with your first issue. You get, you know, it's simply a, a screwdriver. Not to make it sound too simple, it's definitely not a, a child's toy, but um, yeah, you sort of screw, click, and uh, and bolt together. 
And you, you, you don't have to use sort of, really tiny spanners and things to tighten up the wheel nuts or something. No, I mean, uh, it's uh, a fairly regular screwdriver, but we give you one at issue one, one at issue ten, and uh, that does you for the rest of the collection. Oh, okay. Um, and that, having, we've sort of up to, uh, we're about a, a quarter of the way through in the UK so far, so we've started to see people assembling, uh, you know, the side panels onto their chassis with the four wheels. Um, there's been certainly no problem so far, and everyone in Australia will be, uh, you know, just as uh, easy to build. And have it's fun. It's meant to be a fun piece. Right. You do it on a you know, monthly basis, and uh, it's, it's, like, it's a hobby, definitely a hobby, but yeah. it's, um, it's within the Back to the Future realm. I think it makes it that little bit more fun than uh, you know, a standard box kit or something you can buy off the shelf. Yeah. So it's, you're either a Back to the Future nut or a car nut? I think, uh, and we're you know, definitely <laughs> looking for both. Cause that's, yeah. <laughs> or both. Either, yeah. Love to build and love the films. So. Well, it sounds very interesting. Um, and, and have you done many other cars in this way before, or is this a, a new thing for you? Eagle Moss are uh, sort of a leader in doing these uh, these cars. The last big one we did was the uh, James Bond DB5 uh, Aston Martin. Ooh, um, gee, that would have been a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Is, is that the one with the big, the bulletproof shield, which pops up at the back? Yeah, and ejector seat as well. Ejector which, seat, uh, yeah, that was lovely. Only used once, obviously. True. <laughs> Yes, that's right. You're going to use that once. Anyway, look, um, thanks very much for chatting to us here, Tom. It's been great talking to you. It sounds like a really interesting thing to do. And and uh, like years ago, people used to get a lot of uh, airfix models and build things. And, and uh, this might be uh, the start of a new revolution. Who knows? I really hope so. And yeah. uh, like I said, go to the website and I think that's the, uh, the best place to find all the details uh, on top of everything I've, I've said today. Yeah, and, and the website's uh, autotalk.com.au. And the website for the collection is buildthedelorean.com. Thanks for your time. Yeah, well, so maybe you're stuck indoors and the dog's sick of the sight of you. Maybe that's something you can do in the future. that's about it for us here on On The Money this week. You can tune in again next week to find everything you need to know about finance, business and the economy. Thanks to our producer this week, Toby Hemmings. Uh, On The Money is produced in the studios of Radio 2SER for the Community Radio Network and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find all of our store shows and stories at 2SER.com slash on the money. You can subscribe to our podcast. Uh, we get a new episode out on that about every week. Follow us on Twitter, look for at OnTheMoney2SER. Find us on Facebook and Instagram for updates. I'm Roderick Chambers. We're going to be back again next week to give you the inside running on all things financial. Thanks for your company and do stay safe.